this morning, uh, we are going to be uh, concluding, actually, our, our series through, um, uh, through this, this, this portion of Mark. We've been looking, you know, not through the, the entire book, uh, but we're looking through the first ten chapters of Mark, and uh, specifically focusing in on Jesus' Galilean ministry. Um, as Jesus was uh, walking around, as he was speaking, as he was teaching, as he was uh, healing, all of these different things that he was communicating uh, to the people there, both to uh, the disciples, to the Pharisees, to the crowds, and uh, likewise, ultimately, to us as well, he is proving and showing who he is, uh, that he has, has come as he's the Son of God, uh, he has come to, uh, to redeem his people, uh, and he has come to suffer and to die and to raise from the dead, and that he is indeed precisely uh, who he says he is. So as we've been looking at, at all those things, we're this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at this, kind of this, this last portion, this last section of both uh, teachings as well as actions that Jesus does before he enters into Jerusalem. Uh, as he enters into Jerusalem, ascends to Jerusalem, if you will, to make those final statements before he goes to the cross. But as he's concluding his Galilean ministry, uh, what we'll notice is that Jesus makes some extremely important and challenging statements and actions in reference to his kingdom uh, that he is building here on earth. And so I would invite you to please stand uh, for the reading of God's word. Our, our uh, portion of scripture this morning is, is Mark chapter 10. And it is uh, verses 17 through 52. Uh, however, this morning, for, for time's sake, we're going to read through verses 17 uh, through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we see this encounter that Jesus had with this, uh, this, this rich man, Lord God, it exposes idols in our own hearts. God, I pray that as, as we see this, as we see Jesus' teaching, Lord, concerning the kingdom and the impossibility of entering into it, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would show us that with you all things are possible. God, I pray that you would remove any obstacles from our hearts and from our minds, Lord, and that we would see you this morning as you are present through your word, through your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would do this work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Well, humans are capable of performing all sorts of impossible acts. So it see, my, I googled that very phrase, impossible acts or impossible feats, something like that, uh, that uh, by humans. And all of these different feats came up. Uh, there was a woman who lifted a car, a small woman, young woman, with, with her bare hands after this jack broke with her father underneath. She lifted an entire car up high enough so that her father could get out and survive the accident. Uh, there was a person who ran 50 marathons in 50 days. There was another person doing the, almost in a sense, kind of the opposite, who, which was, not surprisingly, this was a high school student who stayed awake for over 11 days. There was a man who held his breath underwater for over 24 minutes. It's crazy the things that humans are capable of doing that seem utterly impossible. But that, that's the point right there. These things obviously then aren't impossible uh, because they have been done by these people. It's a bit misleading. But in our passage this morning, we are confronted with something that is not described as impossible just for clickbait purposes. As Jesus makes his final ascent toward Jerusalem, he has a few interactions uh, with both some desperate people but also with his disciples, which he uses to describe his kingdom. And as bizarre as his final days will be in the eyes of his disciples, he gives them some details of what his, this kingdom is going to be like. Indeed, it will be an impossible kingdom. The kingdom of God, even as we're, we're thinking of that, is something I know that we have spent some time uh, discussing before and, and describing before, and even this morning through, through song, uh, even uh, having our, our, our mind of uh, being shaped of, of what the kingdom of God is as it's revealed in Scripture. And it's simply put, it's God's rightful rule over his creation. You see, when sin entered into the world through Adam and death through sin, it corrupted every facet of life, the physical, the spiritual, the relational, the emotional, the mental. This corruption brought uh, blindness and disease and physical death. It fractured the way relationships were supposed to work before husband and wife, before children and parents, before, uh, bet uh, between friends, uh, between strangers, the abuse that is out there as well, between rulers and the citizens. 
This corruption brought about spiritual disease, spiritual dullness, even more than that, spiritual death, whereby humanity was hardened toward the God revealed in creation. Instead, humanity pursues their lusts and spurns the righteous law of God. There is a separation between God and man on account of this sin, this corruption. And the kingdom which seeks to maintain this darkness is the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of this world. This kingdom has ruled with a tight-fisted grip upon this world for millennia. And while there had been glimpses of the kingdom of darkness being pushed back through God's prophets and priests and kings, the reign of Satan was pronounced and rampant in both Jewish and Gentile worlds. You might remember a number of weeks back when Jesus began his ministry and it said there in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus makes this important announcement. He says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus, the reason why he has come was to usher in this rule of God that will shatter every stronghold of Satan, that will loosen every grip that darkness has, that will tear down each monument in the heart which stands opposed to the Creator. Jesus didn't heal the blind and the sick simply to point others toward their need to be healed of spiritual blindness, but to restore all that was lost in Eden and to point us toward that great restoration whereby God is making all things new. The kingdom of God is God's rule where all things are in subjection under his feet on earth as in heaven. Yet Jesus' description of this kingdom is not going to be what we nor the disciples are expecting. What we'll notice is that because the kingdom of God is actually impossible for man to enter on his own, we must believe in the one who accomplished what was impossible for us. First thing that we notice is this, again, this impossible kingdom. According to, you know, and we're looking here at this, at this section here in, in Mark 10, verses 17 through, through 31, with this, this rich young man, as the ESV heading says, but according to Matthew and Luke, we know that he was indeed young and that he was also a ruler. It's why this passage is often referred to as Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. But one thing we see clearly here is how earnest this young man was as he comes before Jesus. Notice there that he ran up to Jesus and then knelt before him. Remember, this is a rich man. He's a powerful man. He's a ruler. Some may remember uh, this detail often said when, uh, when going through the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, but there was something that was humiliating about a person of authority running in public. That was what's so amazing about the story of the, of the, of the prodigal son, is the father runs to his son, that there was actually a humiliating factor that's going on, this older man doing that. And here's this, 
this rich young ruler that is running before Jesus. Again, this person of some measure of authority. And then he kneels before the one that he calls good teacher. And this term that he employs, even as good teacher, was, uh, it, it, it's not just one who can teach and someone who knows the law like some rabbi, but it's one who can speak with authority. It's, a, it's an honored term that he uses. There is an urgency about his request that few of us probably have maybe even ever expressed in the same way that he did, in such a public fashion. Perhaps privately we have done so, run to the Lord, but he does not appear to be ashamed of his need for eternal life. And he knows that Jesus is the one to go to to find it, as he's asking him. Now, knowing how this passage turns out, how could such an individual be turned away by God? Or, or so this passage reads. Listen, public displays of earnestness for eternal life is insufficient for entrance into the kingdom of God. How many homes have been sold? How much money has been given to charities? How many battles, literal battles and wars, have been fought? How many bodies have been burned in the name of earnestness for eternal life? How great are the desires and the cravings for things which God alone can give, like life, like peace, like hope, like love. How desperately people crave each and every one of them. Yet though we run and kneel before the Lord to receive them, it is not those things which we must desire for eternal life, but that which we must desire is the one who grants them. It is not the things which are granted, but it is the one who grants them. How often people will say, oh, I was searching for God, but he wasn't there. No, we don't search for God left on our own, but we can want those things which God gives. The heart which the Lord demands is the heart of the psalmist who cried out in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven besides you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God to the object of our heart. Not merely those things which he grants, but being in his presence. Do you crave the benefits of the Lord more than the Lord himself? Do you have a greater longing for there to be justice or unity or peace than to be in the presence of of the one from whom all blessings flow. You see, entrance into the kingdom is not based on your desire for eternal life. For entrance into the kingdom is impossible. Right away, you know, Jesus points out how, sh- how, how short the man falls from God's requirement. 
that no one is good apart from God. I believe it's even a statement of no one is good from, except for God alone. You know, again, throughout the, the book of Mark, Jesus has been doing this kind of like secrecy motif thing of like, hey, don't, don't tell anybody who I am. There's, there's a time for this. It, it got a little bolder at the transfiguration. Jesus is starting to tell some people, but he's not there yet until he goes into Jerusalem. No one is good apart from God. And certainly that includes the rich young ruler, even if he keeps all the commandments or thinks that he does. What's interesting is Jesus walks him through the, the second table of the, of the Ten Commandments, uh, how you are called to love your neighbor. But there is one commandment he doesn't mention. Did you notice? He doesn't mention, do not covet. Instead, just like he did on the Sermon on the Mount, he reveals the true intention of the law, that it is not external service that the Lord requires, but a heart matter. He actually exposes, that one that he doesn't mention, he exposes the man's covetous heart by his idolization of wealth and riches, verifying that God alone is good. It is his treasure on earth which is preventing him from securing his treasure in heaven. The call for following Christ is greater than we realize. And we sang last week these words from uh, the Martin Luther hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We sang, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. Are there treasures in your life that you don't even realize are preventing you from inheriting eternal life? Is there a God that you are worshiping as superior to Yahweh? You come and earnestly worship each Sunday morning, yet fall down before the God of success, before the God of family, before the God of the American dream. How tragic would it be for those who had earnestness, but when their life was over, they went away sorrowful, for they had great possessions. You had great success. We all admired you greatly. You had a great family, a great career, yet the one thing you lacked was Jesus Christ. Eternal life is a gift from God because no one is good enough to earn it. Not the rich young ruler, not the disciples, not you, certainly not me. As long as the man stands on his own merits, he is standing on sandy ground. But the word of the Lord calls him beyond his little safe haven. Just as it earlier called the disciples to weigh anchor and to cast out into the deep where there was no security but Jesus. Do not be deceived. This is impossible. Jesus tells his disciples that it is more difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. 
Much has been said about this uh, throughout the generations. Like there was a gate called the needle that a camel had to like bend down low to enter into. So you had to kind of humble yourself to get into the gate. Or the word for camel is kind of similar to the word for rope. And so maybe you meant for a rope to enter into a needle. Because this whole analogy of a camel entering through the eye of a needle sounds ridiculous. And ultimately it's like, yeah, that's the point. It's absurd. A camel entering through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. It can't happen. You know what Jesus is saying. Camel can't go through the eye of a needle. It is impossible. It sounds like another one of those, and, and I don't know how many this is going to be lost on, uh, but if any of you know Roger Miller, the old country singer who has a song, You Can't Roller Skate Through a Buffalo Herd. And he lists a whole bunch of things you can't do. You can't drive around with a tiger in your car. You can't go fishing in a watermelon patch, and you can't bring a camel through an eye of a needle. The possibility of their following Jesus and their salvation is as hopeless as the father who wanted his son to be healed of his epilepsy and his demon possession. As hopeless as Jairus having his daughter raised to life, as hopeless as that woman who was bleeding, healing herself somehow. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus shows us how he has made it possible, actually as he even travels along with his disciples, as he, as he tells them that this is a kingdom which is costly, and this is how it is possible with God is through this costly kingdom. Look there again in our text in verse 32. He says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise." When you think of how kingdoms are formed and won throughout history, it has regularly been through bloodshed. At times, there have been a, you know, a great Greek or Roman army that has entered in, into a town, and there would be no violence due to the obvious loss that the town was going to suffer, uh, so they would simply surrender but time and time again, kingdoms are expanded, they are grown, they are, are built upon bloodshed. Surprisingly, look this up, no nation has won more battles throughout recorded history than France. Who would have guessed it? With just over 1,100 battles won, large, I think, due to Napoleon, I'm assuming. Jesus is saying that his kingdom is won not through the bloodshed of his enemies, though, but through his own blood. That is how his kingdom is won. Throughout the remainder of the gospel, Mark highlights the incredible suffering and rejection of Jesus, really highlighted in the gospel of Mark, is one of the, one of the, the things that he does very powerfully uh, in his gospel. He highlights the, the mockery of a trial that Jesus endured. 
followed by officers and Jews both spitting on him and striking him. Peter's threefold denial of his association with Jesus, him being then delivered over to Pilate. Then a murderer, Barabbas, being released in his place to the chance of Jesus' own people crying out, crucify him, crucify him. He is mocked as as a fake king and again undergoes being beaten and spat upon as he walks the road to Golgotha. Simon of Cyrene shares the burden of Christ by carrying his cross, but then Jesus is crucified and then continues to be mocked by Romans, Jews, and even the robber that is crucified right next to him. The worst punishment of all was not suffering the wrath of man, but by the wrath of God. As Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He utters a loud cry and breathes his last. Jesus endures what we could not. We would not stand up to even the wrath of men, much less to the wrath of God as the weight of our sin was placed upon him and as God's wrath was exhausted upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And in so doing, Ephesians 4, it tells us that he led a host of captives. Jesus then led out those whose sins were placed upon him, leads them out into life. Jesus not only paid the debt of the sinner's adultery, murder, false witness, and covetousness, He didn't just pay that debt, but his perfect obedience to the law of God, he then gives to those that are his. The kingdom of God is costly. It is a kingdom of bloodshed. It costs the Son of Man his very life, though he be raised three days later. Jesus does not want the disciples to miss this. They bragged about what they gave up in order to follow Jesus. But he doesn't want them to think that the cost of the kingdom and the cost of following him is anything less than death itself. Do not think ourselves so smug for what we have given up in contrast to the rich young ruler. Notice, Jesus even emphasizes who it is that is going up to Jerusalem. It is not just him, but did you notice there And he says there in verse 33 that we are going up to Jerusalem. The kingdom which Christ offers is not one of sitting upon a throne here on earth, but one which follows Christ on the road to Jerusalem. One which knows that God has made possible what was impossible for man, yet which calls the follower to forsake his life. But it's not only costly, this kingdom, and we're seeing how, how, how this is true, this, this costly kingdom. It is this, 
This one which is completely antithetical, completely opposed to how we would think of a kingdom being built, an upside-down kingdom. Because Jesus goes on as we, we overhear this conversation that goes on between Jesus and James and John. Look there again in verse, now in verse 35. It says there, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my, at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The kingdom which James and John were espousing to was one that we're all familiar with. It is a kingdom where authority and power are the most prized aspects of it. There's a Gallup poll that I came across where it had um, this, this poll uh, that, that concluded who were the most admired people in 2020 in the U.S. And this is in ascending order. So take that for whatever it's worth too. LeBron James, Bill Gates, Bernie Sanders, Elon Musk, Pope Francis, Anthony Fauci, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. I don't know how you want to read into all that, but there that is. I'm not denying that any of these individuals have done you know, some good, perhaps, for this nation. But how many of them would you say are powerful, and how many would you say are a servant? most admired people in our nation. The kingdom of this world tells you to make friends with the most powerful people you know because of what it will mean for you, of what you can gain from becoming friends with such powerful people. This world tells you to pursue prestige, to pursue accomplishment. It tells you to brag and to name drop and to exaggerate because of then what it can eventually say about you. The disciples seemed to think the road to Jerusalem was a procession of grandeur is where they were heading, or so they thought. 
Think of like the, the Psalm of Ascents. As they go, it's, there's uh, history there with the Jewish people. As they would go to Jerusalem every year for the feasts and for the festivals, it would be this grand time as they would, they would be able to fellowship with one another and, and, and have the, the sacrifices performed and to worship the Lord at the temple. And as they are even going for Passover, they're thinking, ah, yes, and we are coming here with, with the Son of Man. What a great time this is going to be for us. They were very selective in their hearing. They hoped to honor Jesus while still honoring themselves. How easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest. In response to their exclusive request, Jesus instructs the twelve that the economy of God's kingdom is not based on power and control, but on service and giving. Ironically, greatness belongs to the one who is not great. The diakonos, the servant that he says, which is the ordinary Greek word for waiting tables, that is the one that is great. For service is not the only ethic of the kingdom of God, but it is the very means of our redemption. The service by Christ. Even saying that, that a slave would be first among you is likely just as paradoxical in their minds within the, within the disciples as a camel going through the eye of a needle. Wait, the servant, or the, the slave is going to be first? That's an impossibility. The kingdom of God is for those who become like the little children, like we mentioned last week, for those who are despised by the world, while the moral, the rich, and the admired cannot inherit the kingdom of God. How little we honor and celebrate true humility and service. How little we pursue it within our own Christian growth pursuing humility, pursuing service to others. Putting others' needs before your own, that is what the kingdom is all about. I believe we are going to be floored when we get to heaven at the immense crowns put upon the heads of those who weren't the celebrity pastors not those who led those dynamic ministries, but those who daily put others' needs before their own, in their own homes, in their communities, in their workplaces, in their churches, who were servants right where God placed them. I think we're going to be floored at that God is serious when he says this is what the kingdom is all about. This is what I want you to pursue. Serving others. Putting others' needs before your own. The central kingdom ethic isn't evangelism. The central kingdom ethic isn't teaching. It isn't leading or administering. It is serving. It is more than a pattern of the kingdom of God. It is the example of of Christ, for even the Son of Man came to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Scripture talks about the glory 
of the cross. How Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. In the upside-down kingdom, those who are first shall be last, and those who are last shall be first. This crazy kingdom. How do we receive it? What do we do? This, this one that a place of service above all else. This one that is costly. This one that is impossible for me to enter into on my own. How then is it received? Notice in this last section, Jesus gives this incredible just picture here for us of this free kingdom. It is a free kingdom. It is both costly, yet it is free. Look at verse 46. It says, And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Begins with this lowly view set before us. A blind beggar sitting by the roadside. He was on the outskirts. He was an outcast, marginalized. Yet the example we have of clarity, of seeing precisely who Jesus is, was not the the students of the law, the Pharisees. It wasn't those who had been living and traveling with Jesus for these three years. But it is this blind beggar by the roadside. Bartimaeus knew who this Jesus was, not merely a good teacher, but the son of David. He was the Messiah. He was the King. He was the Lord of all. He knew he had nothing to bring him. He had no righteousness, no position. He only knew he needed mercy from the Son of David. He knew it was his only hope, For once he was rebuked by the many, he refused to give in, for he had nowhere else to turn. He persisted in crying out. He was desperate. Not for simply something, but someone, son of David. One writer has noted that the kingdom of heaven is not for the well-meaning, but for the desperate. He is then given the same question. Did you notice that? He is then given the same question that James and John asked of Jesus. You know, when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, uh, James and John said, can you do something for us? And here Jesus is asking this blind beggar, what can I do for you? We 
We do not have blindness. We do not have homelessness. We do not have to beg. We are not rebuked for pleading for mercy from the Son of David. So then, do we have desperate hearts? Are we in desperation for the King? Are you desperate for the Lord to break in with His kingdom into your life, to restore your sight, to restore your marriage, to restore your home, to lead you into His will, to give you a righteousness that is not your own? Are you content with your easy life? What does desperation look like? It is prayerfulness. It is pleading with the God of creation to exercise His power. It is clinging to the truth of who Christ is. Says it again, Son of David, have mercy on me. He's the resurrected one. He is the, the ruler of nations. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Desperation is persistence. In spite of voices telling you to be silent, whether from the outside or whether within, in spite of the kingdom of this world seeking to silence your pleas, persist to crying out to the Son of David. And when Bartimaeus responds to the Lord's question, in humble trust, Bartimaeus asks not for wealth, not for power or success, he asks for his sight. He asks not to be superhuman, but simply human. For the well, normalcy may seem the bare minimum, but for the ill and troubled, normalcy can oftentimes be one of God's greatest gifts. Jesus declares, go, your faith has healed you. Jesus restores what was lost. He pushes back the effects of the fall and gives him sight. The kingdom of God broke through and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. That is the goal of the restoration, to restore our hearts toward their intended goal as well, which is to follow after the one who loves us and bled for us and promises us eternal life for all who trust in him. Impossible isn't staying awake for 11 days or holding your breath for 24 minutes. It is a blind man seeing. It is death coming to life. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, as we have seen Jesus through your word, the healer, the king, the ruler, the son of David, Lord God, may our hearts be full of love, yet of humility. God, we have nothing to bring. Nothing. Even our best of intentions are but filthy rags. 
Have mercy on us, Lord. God, I pray that you would embolden us to persist, to persist in our desperation for you. God, that as we see the King at work, that our hearts would grow and be full, and Lord, that we would live out precisely what you have called us to do as those who have inherited your kingdom by the blood of Christ in service to others and in service to the King. We pray all these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.